Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Tearsheet Editor-in-Chief Zach Miller, and we're streaming today from the podcast stage at Money 2020. One of the things I find striking is how the event has evolved over the past few years. Where in years past, we saw a lot of consumer, but we're beginning to see more and more solutions targeting the enterprise. I think that's clearly the case in enterprise payments. They're just much harder to solve for. I'm joined today by Ulrike Gigi, Head of Enterprise Payment Strategy at Wells Fargo. We're going to jump right in and talk about what large firms need in today's payments environment and what technologies they're turning to to make it happen. So first of all, welcome. And I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Thank you, Zach. And thank you for the invitation. It's great to be here. And what a buzz and what a great comeback for the show. And my name is Ulrike Gigi, and I am responsible for enterprise payment strategy at Wells Fargo. And really what that means is everything to do with payments that spans more than one LOB. So we'll have a new rail such as real-time payments that really has an impact on the entire organization, and we bring that together in our team. We also manage all our uh, payment partnerships and bring new capabilities to the business, which is why we're meeting with a lot of fintechs while we're out here. And how, how big is the team, and I guess how far does it span? So we have 25 people, and um, that's, the, that's the strategy part. Okay, got it. So we'd love to hear more about uh, who your customers are and what kind of companies you serve. So as a bank, Wells Fargo, we have 70 million customers. Of course, you know, we are um, a very large retail bank with over 5,000 branches and um, also 70,000 corporate customers and a very substantial small and medium-sized business unit with 3 million customers. And um, on the enterprise side, who, who's the client in your customers' companies that you're serving? Um, typically, that would be the treasurer or the CFO. And okay, that makes a lot of sense. So, so what are your customers doing now and what kind of payments trends are you seeing in the market? So when we talk about customers, let's, talk on, let's start on the corporate side. Mm-hmm. Um, really what we're seeing there is continued um, automation and the move away from checks. Although um, we met with the, the Federal Reserve last week and we said, when will we have that party where we celebrate the last check having been signed? And we decided not in our lifetime. But um, the uh, corporations really need help with that because once you digitize the payment, you can then do more of the payments optimization. And I think that that is really where a lot of the investment is also going. Can you help me direct the payment down the right rail so that I get the optimal advantage there in terms of liquidity and cost and speed? Um, On the consumer side, and then, of course, on the corporate side, we're also seeing a lot of embedded finance where really the payment is no longer the event. The payment um, is just enabling the transaction in a more seamless way. On the consumer side, we're seeing um, continued adoption of digital payments. Of course, P2P um, has exploded. It's the first time actually that fewer than 50% of P2P transactions are conducted using cash. So Zelle and Venmo are to thank for that. They continues to grow. The growth of digital wallets, our cards are all enabled in Apple Pay and Google Pay. And that is seeing um, tremendous double-digit growth rates. And then um, just in our core card portfolio with the launch of Active Cash or Rewards Card, we still see a strong demand for, uh, for traditional credit cards. So I think even with all the new payment rails coming out, um, the cards business continues to be extremely strong. I'd love to double-click on some of those things. Um, but Ricky, what do, you, what do you think it'll take um, to get uh, on the business side to move beyond checks, it, it, it sounds like from the, F, the Federal Reserve, it doesn't look like that'll happen in our lifetime. But what, what, what's the main hurdle, I guess, that you're, that you're looking at? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think it's going to take integration of payments. And um, really, the, there needs to be an, 
the cost of switching to digital payments and to enabling the automation needs to be less than the cost of check handling. And right now, check handling for the business is really not an expense. It's more an expense for the banks. So that's where the incentives, I would, mm. I would say, are misaligned. So the banks really need to find a way to make it easier um, and not cost prohibitive for, um, for the enterprise to move onto, um, onto newer platforms. And I also believe that the advent of real-time payments can really make a big difference here in terms of um, replacing the check, which is this, um, this instrument that has um, a lot of benefits but very limited information and also very limited certainty that you can actually um, find the other person in, in possession of sufficient funds to make that, uh, that check go through. And real-time payments really has a lot of advantages. So I think that might be the use case that gets... Um, corporations to um, automate or digitize their payments. Oh, that's interesting. So you, you feel like the the introduction of real-time payments may help to accelerate uh, the the destruction of checks. Yes. yes. So that's our hope. Our hope is that that's where real-time payments goes first. And, um, you know, the, the check is a very unique American um, payment instrument. You don't, growing up in Europe, we had Euro checks, um, which were like bank checks, basically, but nobody there uses checks and they've been using bank transfers for decades. So the fact that we're now moving to real-time payments, um, hopefully this new rail is going to be an opportunity to really rethink how, um, how you manage your accounts receivable. Regard, regarding the, the trends question I just asked, I'm curious also how Wells customers experienced COVID um, and what impact, I guess, lockdowns and you know had on payment trends. So um, that's an interesting question. So COVID has really changed. Um, is that... It's accelerated this tremendous, um, this tremendous innovation uh, that's happening in payments because it's shifted away from physical payments to digital payments. First, because a lot of the sales actually moved online, but then even in an offline or store environment, a lot of the um, transactions are now conducted through um, basically online channels, right? Whether it's a tablet or something else, or the um, the type of checkout solutions that um, Amazon is piloting. So consumers increasingly use digital payments and um, the growth of wallets has been tremendous as well as alternative payment methods that are not so easily available at the physical point of sale such as buy now pay later. So we've seen that and with the move to digital payments, I think what that means every time there's a digital transaction is great because there's more data that you can collect and act on, on the benefit for the benefit of the customer or the bank. But it also means it now opens up the transaction for third parties who are very good at designing those endpoints, whether it's an Apple Pay or a Platt or others. So the digitization of payments on the one hand is a very positive trend also for the banks, but it also opens up the ecosystem to others to take away some of the margin out of those transactions. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to shift from talking about trends to the technologies that are in demand. What are you guys seeing? Uh, what technologies are in demand by your customers? So I would um, say every customer, whether you're a CFO, a treasurer, um, or the CEO, is also a, um, a private individual who has expectations now in their, um, in their business interactions that are driven by what is possible in their personal lives. So I think the iPhone is really setting the standard for what your expectations are. So if you have this great experience with the Wells Fargo mobile app, which we just relaunched this year, which has um, got a top ranking than the JD Power survey. Quick plug for that. Um, you have a great experience there, but then you go in and you try to um, have that experience replicated when you're interacting with our 
commercial payment solutions and you find that that might be a lot kludgier because um, of the way that those products have come together and the underlying stack, then that is going to be a source of disappointment. And if you can find somebody who can present what you need to see as a treasurer or as a CFO in a way that's more aligned with um, really your expectations of a digital experience, then that really becomes um, a risk then of losing the customer. So a lot of investment is going there currently to just make sure that we have a similar experience for commercial customers that they are used to in their private lives. That's really an amazing statement that you said that, um, you know, a CEO or CFO, treasurer of a large enterprise, uh, their personal experiences and their personal spending, and per Amazon, Netflix, um, you mentioned the iPhone, impacts, I guess, the decisions they're making from, from a payments point of view. Have you seen that before in your career, that level, I guess, of consumer-driven um, push for innovation? Um, that's, that's a good question. I think the, it's just accelerated. We really believe that um, innovation is in hyperdrive and a few factors coming together from consumers shifting expectations to just what technology enables and um, the just the willingness to embrace new technology. I really think the iPhone has opened uh, the door there because if, when you think back 15 years prior to iPhone, the apps that were on the phone, they weren't called apps. It was just the deck and the uh, manufacturer decided together with the uh, mobile network operator what you could do. The bundle. The phone. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So now you can design your own what's available to do on your phone. And if you ask people if they would want to do that 15 years ago, I think people would have been very hesitant to say, I don't know what should be on my phone. And now nobody has any hesitation about going to the app store and downloading exactly those apps that they need. And I think that also leads me to, when you think about the consumers making those decisions, why have we as a banking industry not gotten to a place where we are building the super app that consists of lots of mini apps where you say, I want to also have my identity information in here. I want to maybe have my um, health information in here and want to bring it all together in one place. There's really a huge opportunity there to build out that super app, right? I like that. Um, I, I want to go back to what one of the trends that you mentioned, which was embedded finance. And um, what you're seeing, maybe define the way Wells looks at embedded finance and, and tell us a little bit about what you're seeing is happening there. Yeah, so with embedded finance, really embedding the uh, the payment into the into the workflows. And that is really driven by, I would say, three major factors. One is um, customer expectations, as we were talking about before. The second one is the ability to streamline the workflow. So I no longer have to leave the workflow in order to make the payment, but the payment is automatically executed as I'm moving through um, my invoice processing, for example. And then third, technology. Um, it's just um, gotten a lot easier to pull together other information, pull information in that you need through APIs. And again, APIs, 10 years ago, nobody was talking about APIs. And now this is the way that you make your data and your information discoverable and easy to plug into without having um, to have very heavy um, integration on the customer side. And and do you feel that um, embedded finance changes the role of, of a firm like Wells? Or, or the know, definition of a bank, you know, if it's it's a very good question because whenever you embed, you really get back to what is the essence of the payment. The payment enables something that I want to do as a corporation, as a consumer. Nobody gets up to make a payment. They get up and they go to the store to buy a T-shirt, or they have to pay the purveyor who just dropped off the seafood at the restaurant, right? So. This payment just enables an activity, but I still have to decide how do I pay. So I open my wallet or I go online. 
The moment that payment gets embedded, I no longer make the decision about how I'm going to pay for this. It's already, it is like a stored credential at an Amazon or an embedded um, payment for a corporate customer. That decision about what rails that goes down has been made. And so you lose the ability to interact as a brand with a consumer or with a corporate customer because you're more and more in the background. And I think the big worry for banks is that we will just become... Um, dumb pipes, I'm sure you've heard that word before, and that we lose that um, interaction with the customer. So it's a very real conflict. We want to have the most seamless interactions for our customers, but we also want to make sure that they still realize who the brand is and that they keep choosing the brand. Yes, I've heard the term dumb pipes before, <laughs> and I, I know the tension. We've spoken to a few guests on our podcast about um, exactly that tension you're talking about, the, 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 ease, the, the usability and ease uh, to give to customers, but also maintaining the brand awareness up front. I'd like to switch topics to uh, adoption trends, like what, what you're seeing customers doing today. Yes, yeah, so adoption, um, I would say um, definitely for um, on the consumer side, uh, as we talked about before, P2P payments, tremendous double-digit growth, um, digital wallets, um, double-digit growth. So the adoption there is very quick. Um, on the corporate side, uh, we do know that about two-thirds of all banks are now enabled um, with real-time payments, and therefore we would also assume that their corporate customers are enable, enabled to push and receive real-time payments, but that adoption has been much slower than we would have hoped for or expected. Um, and what does your roadmap look like going forward? As much as you can share with us, of course. So... Um, for us, a big, um, big topic is to continue to refine our value propositions to best serve our customers' needs on the consumer side and on the corporate side. Um, I'm very excited about real-time payments and request for payment coming up as a new functionality that um, can really have a lot of um, use cases. And then, of course, this year or next year in May, we're going to see the launch of FedNow. And um, hopefully that will get us to that um, real-time payments adoption and then everything else is just digital, digital, digital. We don't want to be a digital-only bank, but a digital-first bank for sure. And that's where um, a lot of the investment is going. So, so maybe we can uh, talk about that a little bit more. What does it mean for to be a digital-first bank? What role do, does a physical presence have then? Yes, so the physical presence continues to be important because the branches are really anchored in the communities. They're... Um, employ members of their community. They are where members of the community come to have their elementary financial needs met. And as long as we still have cash in our society, there's also a very real um, practical and tactical role that those branches play. And by the way, um, when we met with the Fed last week, they told us that cash has gone up 17% year over year. So it's how is that possible? I don't know. Um, we also learned that there's a copper mining lobby that is <laughs> lobbying against the evolution wow. of the penny, which the Fed wants to get rid of because it costs them so much money to produce. So cash apparently is here to stay. So as long as we have cash, um, we'll have branches. But branches also play important roles in terms of being able, being a center of advice um, for a small business, for somebody considering opening a mortgage and for somebody opening bank accounts. So there are people whose preference that is. Um, I would say, though, digital first means that a lot of the advice that you're getting in the branch, can we create that and deliver it in a digital manner? And for that, we just announced yesterday here, together with Google, the launch of Fargo, um, our, um, our AI-powered assistant. So in the first instance, Fargo will answer simple questions like, what is my balance? 
But uh, the anticipation is that further down in that roadmap, Fargo will be able to say, hey, Vicky, you have a lot of money sitting in your savings account. They could be better invested. So um, what, what do you want to do with your money? So I think that's where it will never replace the human, but hopefully it will be so intuitive that you will want to interact with that, uh, with that app. Congratulations on the Fargo launch. I know about that as well. Uh, Tearsheet published on, on, on the, the launch today. Um, I'm curious, Ulrike, what role uh, partnerships play in, in, in your roadmap and, uh, and where, where the firm's going to go in enterprise payments? Yes, partnerships are crucial. I, I think we all know by now that it's very difficult for large organizations to innovate from within and that um, a lot of the talent is, um, frankly, more drawn to, the, to working for smaller companies, for startups or fintechs, and um, they come up with solutions that are very specific around real needs and real use cases, then we will look at them. And that's also why we're here meeting with a lot of them. I do have to say that also what we can learn from partners is really in-depth knowledge of verticals. So when you think about, we're in the merchant services business, but it's a scale business. But now that is moving to being really a vertical-driven business. For example, Toast, with a great um, with a great product they have, which enables you to not just pay at your table, but you know, offers a customer loyalty program and integrates into your backend ordering system so you can calculate your food costs. Restaurants are willing to pay a premium for that. So we're in the scale business, but somebody else has built this better, um, this better proposition with a lot of data and um, well, based on really deep understanding of that vertical. So how can we leverage that? Um, all this work that's being done um, to enhance our own value proposition. So partnerships, very important. And... Um, the, the balance of power, of course, is always um, is always an interesting one to manage because some of those partners may be um, pure technology providers and others may be potential competitors that you enable, but that is the name of the game. So I'd like to ask a little bit more about that. Um, what is your perspective in terms of going into a partnership with a firm that could clearly move laterally, I guess, to become a competitor? Yes, so I think if you ask the banks, um, do you wish that you had stood up your own PayPal 20 years ago? They would all say, yes, wouldn't that be great if we had a competitive product in the market? But at times you need, to in, you need to enable and support and fund that innovation happening because it will also force you then to make the right moves as a, as a bank yourself. So I don't, uh, it would be a very narrow filter if we said we cannot we cannot work with anybody in financial services because they'd be our competitor eventually. You don't know how those companies evolve. And um, we do need to cast a wide net so that we can bring in the capabilities that we don't develop in-house. So when you were mentioning um, the types of partners you look for, uh, you, looked for you mentioned deep uh, industry uh, experience and, and understanding. What about from a cultural point of view? What, what, what does Wells look for in making a good partnership? So a good partnership is definitely somebody who um, has respect and understanding for what it means to work with a highly regulated business, which I know, especially in the early stages, um, can often be, uh, there can be something that would be perceived as slowing you down. But you, if you work with us, you have to be prepared to go through this rigorous vendor onboarding process. And also now you're going to offer your product to consumers who are protected by a lot of protection. So that understanding, I think, is fundamental. And then really the willingness to um, work together, get to a proof of concept quickly, but also be willing to fail and learn from that failure and move forward. One of the things I've heard at this conference um, when I'm speaking to financial institutions is 
almost the institutional muscle memory about learning how to better partner. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about Wells's journey on in enterprise payments. Um, what kind of experiences you've gained to um, to understand how to work with your partners differently? Yeah, so I think the irony is that oftentimes um, banks will bring in, I think it's mostly if you acquire somebody who's already very successful at what they do, and then by overwhelming them with all these processes and um, that we have to set up in order to be compliant with all the regulation, you kind of kill the spirit and all the talent leaves right after the lockup period. And um, that's why I don't believe that acquisition is net is necessarily always a value-add activity. I think it really is if you keep them vibrant and they can continue working on their product portfolio and you bring those products and features in, um, I believe that that is the, um, the more productive way to move forward with partners. Last question. I know I've peppered you with a lot already. Um, what are you most excited about coming down the pike in terms of what's happening in the payments industry? There is so much going on. It's exciting times. Um, I think after having walked the hall today, I'm thinking we need to reconsider our investment in cross-border because there is so much cross-border, <laughs> especially Latin America. I don't know what it is that we're, um, that we're not seeing there. Um, I'm really excited about the new rails and, of course, beyond real-time payments, what is going to happen with CBDC um, and what are the opportunities um, that have been opened up by Distributed Ledger we are, um, of course, a member of the Clearinghouse, and the Clearinghouse is doing a pilot with, which is called IXP, to move uh, to move funds cross-border using distributed ledger technology. SWIFT is going in that direction. So really, where can we, as a bank, use that technology? And I'm not talking about crypto, which I think is a completely separate topic, but where can we use that technology to move funds um, quicker um, and more seamlessly? That is uh, exciting. And then what is going to happen with the new rails I think um, really what is, you know, what are the use cases that people are going to build on these account-to-account -account movement rails? Ulrike Gigi, Head of Enterprise Payment Strategy at Wells Fargo. Thanks so much for joining us on the Tearsheet Podcast today. Thank you for having me, Zach. It was a pleasure.